I was thinking as the choir sang that as human beings, we live in a world of unsatisfied desire. And it's, it's not just what we see around us, it's what we feel in us. No matter how hard we work, no matter how successful we are, over time there's just this, this nagging thirst, this nagging hunger for something more. We feel like life should be more than this. We, we feel the sense that, that we were made for more than this. And we're right. And our difficulty is, is finding what will actually satisfy that thirst. And, and finding something that actually helps us recover what we were made for. And recover it not just for time where it ends up all over at a funeral, but for eternity. Last time we were together in John's Gospel, we... We're witnessing a swirl of questions around Jesus. You know, we think of Jesus as the calm one, the one that just, you know, sets everybody at ease, but realize that more often than not, Jesus was the disruptor. Jesus set things on edge. Jesus caused questions because he's unique in history. He he doesn't fit the mold. And when you look at what he did and you hear what he said, you're forced to deal with who Jesus is, and not everyone answers that question well. So last week, we looked at that question, who is Jesus? And today, we come to the climax of Jesus' ministry during the week-long Feast of Tabernacles. He calls us to leave the sidelines of confusion and of speculation and debate and just come to Him and drink freely from the waters of salvation. In John 7, 37 to 53, follow with me as I read. In verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house. Really, three 
individuals or groups that we're looking at this morning in this passage. The first is Jesus himself and the invitation that he offers in verses 37 to 39, invitation. Second is the crowd. And the crowd is marked by confusion in verses 40 to 44. And finally, the leaders, they are marked by disdain, disdain. So Christ's invitation, and that really characterizes the way he is and how he conducted ministry. It was one of invitation of meeting needs. And then crowd confusion, the leaders disdain. Consider with me first the invitation of Jesus. Everything really hinges on this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, the feast that's referred to here is the Feast of Tabernacles that commemorated God's provision during the wilderness wanderings and anticipated God's blessing in the Messianic age. In the, the wilderness, God led and protected His people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And you remember that He provided, there in the desert, He provided water from the rock. Obviously, without water, we die. So, so every morning on this particular feast that commemorated the wilderness wanderings where God provided for Israel, every morning a priest would fill a golden pitcher with water from the fountain of Siloam and then would carry it in solemn profession, procession to the altar and, and then pour it out before the Lord along with a drink offering of wine. Trumpets would sound and the people would sing from Isaiah 12 verse 3 with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. So they saw the connection with, of God's provision in the wilderness of water and God's provision of salvation, the water of life that comes through the Messiah. So Jesus issues this invitation. He cries out at the end of this, this week, this festival, and it fits very well what's been going on every day as they watch uh, this, this not just for kids, this symbolic gesture of showing water provided by God. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There is a condition. You have to be thirsty. If anyone thirsts, nobody comes and nobody drinks who isn't thirsty. You need to be thirsty for what Jesus offers, thirsty for forgiveness from your sin, thirsty for freedom from the domination of sin and the curse of death, thirsty for a restored relationship with God, thirsty for salvation, thirsty for what we lost when we turned away from God in the Garden of Eden. We've been exiles from Eden ever since, and we've been thirsting for paradise. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Now, if you don't thirst for these things, you won't be interested in Jesus. You won't come to him to drink. If you think, for instance, that Jesus is there just to provide the muscle to achieve your own goals, like your genie in the bottle, or to entertain you, or to make you feel good about yourself, or whatever kind of, of self-centered objective you have, you don't really understand who he is, and quite frankly, you don't understand yourself. You don't understand your own needs. You don't understand the value of what he offers, and you don't understand how desperate 
you actually are. You know, every, every year people will go into hospital because of being dehydrated. It particularly happens with the elderly. They're not taking in enough liquid, and it, it causes all kinds of problems. There, there are people spiritually dehydrated, and they don't know what's wrong with them. And what they need is a drink from the fountain of life. If you think that you have to fix your own brokenness before you dare come to Christ for salvation, you don't understand how hopeless and how helpless you actually are on your own. Only Jesus can actually quench that thirst, and nothing less will do. It's like the song says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. As long as you've got kind of that smug self-satisfaction or you think you're going to make it on your own, that you're captain of your fate, then you won't need Jesus. At least you won't think you will. But the reality is without water we die. And without Jesus, you cannot live. God is the only source of life and Jesus is the only one who can get you back to God. So to come to Jesus and to drink is a picture of relying on Him to give you the water of eternal life from the wellspring of God Himself. His, his invitation sounds remarkably like what was read at the beginning of the service from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So you don't have to have money. You don't have to be accomplished. You just need to be thirsty. You just need to be hungry. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. He goes on to say a few verses later, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he were abundantly pardoned. Isn't it interesting? This invitation is is given to those who are wicked, to those that are unrighteous, to those who know they are not worthy of coming. And he says, come, I will pardon, I will have compassion on you. And Jesus' invitation comes with a promise, a prediction of what will inevitably happen in our lives if we come. In verse 38, he says, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not, was not yet glorified. So coming to Jesus is not just a decision you make. It's not just a momentary religious experience that you mark in your calendar. It's actually the beginning of a new life that is fruitful and beneficial. And it works this way for everyone, anyone who comes to Him, who actually comes to Jesus to drink. The water of life 
not only quenches your own thirst, it makes you a source of refreshment to others. Your transformed life flows out from you to others and blesses them. This is the way salvation works. We say, well, how is that possible? Well, think with me. Life comes from being restored to fellowship with God, reconciled to God. When you trust in Jesus, the vitality of God's life flows into your life, into you personally, in the person of the Holy Spirit. He transforms you from the inside out. He makes you beneficial to others. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit grows from life, and fruit is beneficial. You know, fruit is not just ornament. Fruit is life-giving. Fruit is helpful. And so this fruit of the Spirit coming from life is also beneficial. And think about what that fruit includes. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering. That's the opposite of being short-tempered with people. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, what's true about all these qualities is they come from a person's character. They're they're inside-out kinds of qualities, and they profoundly impact the people whose whose lives you touch. They're relational in nature. You get your relationship with God right, and His life fills your life, and you finally have the roots you need to bear fruit so that your relationship with other people actually benefits them. Instead of fruit, the metaphor Jesus uses here is rivers of water. A believer who has come to Christ and has drunk deeply from the wells of salvation not only has his own thirst quenched for himself. It's not just, you know, I found the answer. He then becomes a blessing to others. He has a reason for his existence. He's on mission. And wherever he goes, people are refreshed and restored from what flows from his life. Now, the question is, are you that kind of person? Are you that kind of person? I mean, think about your relationships. Think about your husband, your wife. Think about your mom, your dad. Think about your children. Think about your coworkers. Think about your neighbors. Think about the people that you know here at the church. Think about the people that you know uh, through other venues. When you enter the life of these other people, and particularly people you're, you're with the most, are they benefiting from that? Are they being blessed by that? Are, uh, is the goodness of God so filling you up that you're flowing out to them? Would, would they say, that they are blessed because they know you and your life touches theirs. I mean, who is drinking from the rivers that flow from inside you because you've been transformed on the inside by the Holy Spirit of God? You see, this is different from just putting on a good show. This is different from just putting you know, your best foot forward. This is, this is different from showing up at church and looking like everything is going great. 
This is day in, day out kind of stuff. This is your roommate. This is your classmate actually being benefited because they know you. They, they see you on their, your good days and your bad days. They know who you really are, not who you just pretend to be, because who you are comes from what God is doing in you. He's given you this water of life, and, and, and your life flows out the thirsty souls. And you know, what's cool about this, I mean, you could be five years old. If you're born again, your life blesses those who are around you. You can be 95 years old, and the same thing is true. Because God is in you, and, and God is using you this way. This is, this is why it works. This is what's so different about actually being rescued by Jesus and this, you know, becoming religious. Well, John explains from his vantage point at the end of the century, when he's writing this gospel, some 60 years after the events of the chapter, that Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given in this way to every believer until the day of Pentecost. Jesus was glorified in his dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus was glorified in his rising from the dead. Jesus was glorified in ascending into heaven. He like put the, you know, the, the final proof that he was exactly who he said he was. He demonstrated his power and his glory. And from Pentecost onward, believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear testimony, first-hand testimony about Jesus Christ, and to make disciples, followers, learners of Jesus out of all the ethnicities all over the planet. The water of life they received from Jesus flowed out to literally the whole world through the gospel witness. I mean, that's why we're worshiping Jesus here. We're a long ways from Jerusalem. And yet we've come to know Jesus through the water of life that flowed through these witnesses eventually to us. The book of Acts records the first 33 years of that gospel advance. Rivers of life flowed out to people all over the earth through believers full of the water of life from God. The verse right before what people sang from Isaiah each day, the Feast of Tabernacles, tells us something about the personal benefit of drinking from the wells of salvation that God alone can give us through Jesus. In verse 2 of Isaiah 12, behold, God is my salvation. He's the one that rescues me. He's the one that delivers me. He's the one that heals me. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Think about, think about the blessing you can be if, if you're not one of, just another one of those fretful people freaking out about everything bad that's going wrong in the world. Like that's something new. You know, pick up any book of history. Okay? This is nothing new that there's things going wrong. So why, why so fearful? And and, and think about the blessing you are if, if you're the strong one. But, and the strong one doesn't mean survival of the fittest where you chew on everybody else. It means you're the strong one that, that provides stability and, and rest and protection. And, and you're the joyful one. You're the one with a song, a song even in the night. 
This happens if God has rescued you. So, is what you are thirsty for what Jesus offers? Or are you seeking something else instead? I can tell you this, as long as you try to quench your thirst some other way, you will always be thirsty. And if you think that that you've had your thirst satisfied, you've been satisfied with far too little because there's a day coming when you're going to find out it was nothing. It was nothing. When did you first come to Jesus to drink from the wells of salvation. I mean, has there actually been this turning point in your life? And I'm not talking about when did I decide to go to church? You know, when did I decide to be born in my Christian family? Uh, When did you actually come to Jesus and drink? And what evidence can you see that beneficial rivers are flowing from your life to others around you? I mean, what a great reason to live. I mean, think of your life like a, a river of refreshing water to those who know you. Think, think about the joy of being able to, to serve people that way and to, and to know that this is living water, like water in a river, not just a stagnant pond. This is living water. Jesus continues to, to cause that water to flow. There, there's no end. It's infinite in supply. I mean, think what a blessing you can be to your wife, to your husband to your kids, to your parents, to those most affected by your life, if you're this kind of person. Now, this is the invitation of Jesus. It's a beautiful invitation full of promise. It, it, it kind of, just to think about it, brings light to our countenance and, and hope to our life. And in the crowd, when they heard these words, it wasn't settling for all of them. It actually it actually created some confusion. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ, the Messiah, comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Then some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And And we hear more about that later, officers that were sent by the authorities. And perhaps there were others that were sympathetic to uh, the fear the authorities had about Jesus. So, So what are they talking about, the prophet? Well, the prophet is the one that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18. In verse 15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then he quotes God. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Think how much this sounds like what Jesus said when he talked about where his words came from, where his works came from, from the Father. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it. Of him. So when Jesus issues his invitation, Jesus is issuing an invitation not just from Jesus, but from God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is God's invitation. And a prophet's one who hears from God and speaks to others, but there's this particular prophet. And at the time of Jesus, many viewed that this prophet 
that Moses predicted was to be the forerunner to the Messiah, not the Messiah himself. Others thought it would be the Messiah. Peter makes clear in Acts 3 and Stephen in Acts 7, however, that the prophet and the Messiah and Jesus are one and the same. Yes, Jesus is the prophet. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. But at this point, the people are confused. They're not sure what to believe. Others in the crowd believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They were likely new believers with much yet to learn, but they had gotten far enough to trust in Jesus as a Messiah. Others pushed back. They knew that Micah 5.2 identified Bethlehem, the city of David, as Messiah's birthplace. But because Jesus grew up in Galilee, they just assumed that he had been born there. So while they saw with their own eyes and, with, and heard with their own ears evidence that would lead them to conclude that Jesus was unlike anybody else and was indeed the Messiah, they couldn't figure out how he could be the Messiah since they thought he was from Galilee. You know, this is where can, you can be partially right but totally wrong. Confusion comes when we don't have enough information. They were right about the Messiah's birthplace, but they were uninformed about where Jesus was born. If they had known that, they would have known that Jesus matches perfectly the prophecies that were given. Often the confusion people experience regarding Jesus has to do with being uninformed or misinformed about him. And that's really important for us to understand The Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It's not a leap in the dark. And the eyewitness history God has preserved for us in the Scriptures untangles the confusion that people can face regarding the identity and ministry of Jesus. What the apostles did was to spread the word concerning Him so that people knew the truth about Him. And we need to do the same thing. There are people all around us confused about Jesus even in the Bible Belt, maybe even especially in the Bible Belt. I mean, this was Jerusalem. These are people that know something about what the Bible has to say, and how many times they've had a conversation with somebody who says, well, doesn't the Bible say such and such? And you think to yourself, well, actually, no. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say that, but the Bible does say this. Or, I think God is this way, or, or I think Jesus would want this. Well, let's, let's go to the source of who Jesus actually is and what he actually did and what he actually said and dispel the confusion. Get people exposed to the accurate record of who Jesus is, what he said and what he did, and often their confusion will dissipate. And if you think about it, this is our job, right? This is why we're on the planet. We, we've come to know Jesus. We're supposed to help other people come to know Jesus. Expose them to what the Word of God actually says. So, your testimony, hey, I found Jesus. I found the answer. It changed my life. Well, that's good so far as it goes. But here's what you're going to hear from a lot of people. Well, that's great for you. You know, I wish I were like you. That's great for you. What they need to hear is more than that. They need to hear the record of who Jesus is and what he said and what he did, what he accomplished, and how much they need him. That's what they need to hear from you. Great that you can back that with personal testimony that you tried it. But look, you're not saving anybody. And and your personal experience doesn't, honestly, doesn't prove a thing. I mean, haven't you heard some pretty 
crazy personal experiences. I'm not willing to go out on a limb and bank my life on your crazy experience, okay? But the record of Jesus is what people need to hear. So what questions about Christ and the Bible or Christianity do you need to investigate more? There's no way in a group this large that there aren't those among us. In fact, all of us can be here at various times or you're, you're like kind of perplexed about some things about Jesus or, or about the gospel. There's some things that are confusing to you. Well, well, what can you do to investigate that more instead of staying in the confusion? What friends or acquaintances do you know personally that could use your help in finding biblical answers to what confuses them about Jesus and the gospel. And of course, this assumes that you've actually had a conversation, right? I mean, you can't do this at a distance. You can't, like, not even know this person or what they're dealing with and be able to help them. So this means you're going to have to get in close to people. And that leads to the third question. What is your strategy and your timetable? So this isn't one of those wishes that never comes to pass for engaging with them to help them. Remember, go back to what Jesus said, that when you come to him and your thirst is quenched with the waters of life, he makes you like a river of water for other people. So, so if you're going to quench their thirst, that means you've got to be engaging them. And one of the things you're going to be dealing with up front is confusion regarding Jesus and the gospel. The third category we see in our passage are the leaders, and they are characterized by disdain. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The objections of the Jewish leaders will hinge partly on the same basic question that caused confusion among the crowd. But their spirit is decidedly different than that of the crowd. It is proud and dismissive, full of disdain, and unwilling to do the least bit of investigation into the claims of Jesus. Those who lead often develop an unteachable spirit characterized by disdain or what they consider common people, and hostility toward anyone who threatens their power, prestige, and comfort. And if you think it doesn't get into the church, then you haven't been around much. It's very easy for those who lead, who have influence, to, to arrogate to themselves more importance than they actually have. And, and we are instead to be characterized by humility. Look, you and I have got to have a teachable spirit till the day we die because we will never achieve infallible, absolute, you know, we'll never reach a point where nobody can teach us anything. We we'll always need to be teachable. Now, you'll notice that these leaders don't actually deal with any of the observations or the questions. They don't have an answer for what the officers report regarding the extraordinary teaching of Jesus. Instead, they attacked the officers as gullible fools. I mean, did you notice? They, they didn't really deal with the problem. They didn't deal with the question. 
they respond asking whether any of the authorities or the Pharisees have believed in Jesus. As if these men are the absolute determiners of what is true and what is not. It's just an inherently arrogant position to take, and it's self-deceived. And, and ironically, the answer to their question was yes. It was yes. There were believers among them. Nicodemus was well on his way, if not there already. The same with Joseph of Arimathea. There, there were those among them who believed in Jesus but were afraid to make it known at this time, because they were afraid of what it would cost them. It would mean vicious attack. It would mean even being thrown out of the synagogue as if they had denied the faith. We read about it in John 12. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, like kicked out of the church, okay? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They had some distance to go yet, until they were, they were ready to follow Jesus no matter what. Well, these leaders proceed to charge that only the gullible crowd would believe in Jesus, declaring that they don't know the law, that's the Scripture, and it's their ignorance that makes them believe, and it's their ignorance that makes them accursed. This was their attitude, really, toward anyone that wasn't in their approved group. They just assumed that if you weren't educated in their schools, you were stupid. Not just ignorant, but stupid, cursed. You had nothing to offer. And then, one of their own group speaks up, and the attitude goes against him as well. In verse 50, Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, and remember, like, you know, Nicodemus, Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. I mean, he, he's well established. He's like at the top of his game. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, here's one of their own that raises a legitimate and wise question, but they shoot him down without even investigating. They shoot him down just for asking the question. They bypass his insightful question. They turn on him with prideful disdain. If he's even asking the question, he must be from Galilee, too. He must be ignorant, too. Well, he was neither. He wasn't from Galilee, and they knew it, and he wasn't ignorant, and they knew it. Their declaration goes too far. Fact is, there actually were prophets that came from this region in Israel. Jonah was one, possibly Nahum and Hosea, among others. And one more thing. God had sent them the last of the prophets. His name was John the Baptist. He was from Judah tribe of Levi, land of Judah, but they didn't listen to him either. This is nothing but an empty excuse. These leaders' self-righteous sense of superiority over other people in other regions of the country is based on unwarranted ethnic and cultural pride. It runs contrary to the universal reality that all people everywhere are sinners in need of salvation, including themselves, 
and that the salvation God offers is universal in scope as the Abrahamic covenant made clear from the start. All the families of the earth will be blessed in your offspring. It ignores the fact that God has sent prophets from rural regions, from the country, not just from the city. So their arrogance, ironically, betrays ignorance or dishonesty or both, which, by the way, is inevitable if you take this viewpoint. If you take the viewpoint that nobody can teach you anything, if you take the viewpoint that you're better than everybody else, then, then you, are, you have imprisoned yourself in ignorance. You're self-deceived in the first place, but, but now you've closed off being able to grow. Now, the likelihood is that they are mainly focused on whether the Messiah would come from Galilee, but if they had done their homework, like check with the eyewitnesses, and there were plenty of them, they would have known Jesus was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. They would have known that Jesus had descended from David the king. But they can't afford to open that door. They couldn't open the door to honest searching for answers because doing so had the potential to threaten their kingdom of self-promotion and self-protection. Never mind if they missed out on finding their Messiah. Never mind if they lost out on entering into a life reconciled with God, with life power from Him. You know, you don't have to be a leader to have this kind of attitude, but this kind of attitude will keep you out of heaven and send you straight to hell because it's not the attitude of anyone who's actually thirsty. It's not the attitude of anyone who knows how needy he or she actually is and who comes to Jesus. So I'd like you to, you know, this is not just confined to the first century. I'd like you to think about this. When have you witnessed those who have power or influence belittling those who ask legitimate questions? You realize this can happen even in the home with mom or dad and the kids? Like, I'm in charge here. Shut up. You're in charge here. So you ought to know what's going on in your kid's heart and life. What, you know, questions are good. We have many teachers in our congregation, and sometimes it's irritating, and sometimes the questions are, you know, trying to get you off track. I get that. But, but you might be irritated by the questions because you can't stay on schedule, but, but questions are often your best clue as to where kids actually are and what they're actually understanding. So... So if you do have any level of power influence, what do you do with legitimate questions? Are you willing to engage people that way? And when have you found yourself protecting your pride rather than honestly searching for truth? You know, it's good for us to ask ourselves, why am I not willing to do my due diligence with this? And what individuals or groups have you ever treated as less valuable or significant than yourself? Perhaps, perhaps there are types of people you think, oh, well, God could never save them, or they would, they would, never, they would never believe the gospel. How do you know? Like, you, we do understand it takes a miracle of God's grace in a person's life for them to even be open to the gospel. So, so why would you just categorically say they must be outside the pale? You don't know that. 
And so think about those individuals that you could actually benefit. Thirsty ones, weary ones, broken ones, longing ones, dying ones. Come. Come to Jesus. Jesus, you know, over and over he issues invitation. He is characterized by invitation. You see his arms open wide to receive you. The crowd is confused. Leaders may disdain. You be the one that comes. And then let your life be a blessing to everyone around you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would respond to the call of Jesus to come to him. Lord, even as believers, sometimes we try to find satisfaction in places where it's impossible to find. Help us to come to Jesus. Help us to drink deeply. And Lord, as we drink and that life flows into our life, may we then provide life and refreshment to others. For it's in Christ's name.